Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today, I have the pleasure to interview Dr. Elizabeth Pryor, Associate Professor of History at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. We have her on today to discuss her 2016 book published by the University of North Carolina Press, Colored Travelers, Mobility and the Fight for Citizenship Before the Civil War. Welcome to the channel, Dr. Pryor. Uh, Hi, thanks for having me. Once again, thank you for uh, deciding to come on the channel today. We're definitely excited. Um, Is this phenomenal book? It's something that a lot of people will in part be a little surprised about um, being this uh, pre-Civil War time, but also I think they're going to be astounded at what they read within it. Um, And so, um, you know, let's get into uh, how you got started. So if you could give us a a brief uh, uh, biography of yourself. I'm teaching right now at Smith College. I'm an associate professor at Smith College, and I um, have my BA from Tufts in Boston, and then um, got a master's at Cornell University in Ithaca, and got my PhD at um, uh, University of California in Santa Barbara. And uh, yeah, I'm, well, the project came out of my, what I was calling when I started graduate school, my search for the black woman's voice. And which I like later kind of realized that was, wasn't really saying what I meant to say, but at the time, which Mm. was, you know, I was applying for graduate school in the early nineties, there wasn't a ton of stuff like there is much more of now um, talking about black women and engaging black black women's literatures. And so I started working with um, a historian um, in the Africana Studies Department at Cornell who really um, helped me to understand that I was less interested in this thing that I was this amorphous thing that I was calling the black woman's voice and more interested in history. And so I um, I started to um, do a lot of research on Ida B. Wells and uh, I actually went to England and Scotland as a graduate student to follow her anti-lynching tour abroad and, you know, do research abroad on her. 
And I started to ask, you know, uh, uh, the basic question, like, well, what was, you know, the nuts and bolts questions, what was travel like for her? How did she, how did she get there? What was she segregated in the travel? Like, and I thought there was going to be a secondary book that was just going to have all the answers that I could cite. And I increasingly found that, that even though the experience of segregation had followed black travelers from when they started traveling, um, they actually, um, uh, there hadn't been something that had put that whole story together. And so that's sort of what kept pushing me both into telling the story, the larger story of travel, but also pushed me backward in time from the late 19th century and my study of Ida B. Wells into the antebellum period. Mm. Well, hey, we definitely uh, both share a, a great interest in, in Ida B. Wells because she's definitely someone who uh, was, uh, she, she was one of the greatest uh, internationalists, um, really, when you, obviously, when you talk about the anti-lynching movement. Um, and so, yeah, that's actually a really, really cool way to bring in this particular story, too, um, that you talk about in a period uh, just before her life began, really. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And so um, and, and thank you for that, because a lot of times when we um, when we have listeners and, and we get feedback, it's it's always really cool um, to hear about the trajectory of uh, of scholars and and kind of how they really get to their uh, particular projects, because we have people on the channel uh, as, as far as listeners who are scholars themselves in the academic field or in the museum world as well. But, you know, you also have the the, the, the students and, and those who are kind of looking to, uh, to see how, you know, some of their favorite authors and historians got to where they are today. So we're definitely appreciative of you uh, giving us that uh, brief backstory for yourself. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And so um, to get, you know, knee deep within the book, um, you know, let's start out with um, the first chapter. Um, and so, uh, you know, N-word and home and etymology, would you be able to Tell us a bit about um, your your uh, decision at starting at with this particular grounding for for, for your book. Uh, yeah, I will. I'm, so the the book grew out of my dissertation research on travel, like I said, um, and and it started the the idea was to the book is framed um, to follow the trip itself from departure to return. So I wanted to start with the idea of what travel looked like for Black people in the in the so-called free North, and then follow the abolitionists that I study in their trips abroad. Um, so I have a chapter about, um, you know, getting a passport. I have a chapter about activism. Uh, it starts with, you know, activism on, you know, public transportation, then getting a passport, then the transatlantic voyage, and then the experience of actually being abroad and that sense of freedom. And that worked for me for a long time. But um, when I was teaching at Smith, I kept running into this issue in the classroom, which was how to teach people like Frederick Douglass um, and others who have the N-word in their work and how to, how to kind of utilize that language in the classroom space in a way that recognized um, its violence and didn't reify anti-Blackness in my classroom. So I, started, so I started thinking a lot about the N-word and I had a, I had like an incident that I've, you know, blogged about elsewhere 
um, where a white student in the class was very well-meaning and very engaged, ended up dropping an N-bomb in my class. And I, the, the solution I came up with was really like, I, I, like uh, out of fear, like I basically censored the word. So we didn't end up really digging in and doing any of the work that eventually I got, got to in the classes that I teach now. So anyway, one of the questions that came up for me was like, what does it even mean? Like, what is the, do, do we even know what the N word actually means? Like, are we so sure? And so I started, um, I love the, um, the digital newspaper databases and I, I, love, I, I love playing with them. And as a mother, I, you know, um, who had young children who was doing this work, it was actually really exciting to be able to do that kind of work without having to necessarily travel to an archive all the time, but to have that supplement my research. And so um, um, I turned to those databases and I started plugging in the N-word. And I, I, I found something that I thought was really illuminating, which was that it seemed to me that the that the N-word was used, at least in newspapers, in a way that was really different than I expected it would be. I thought that white people just used the N-word all the time, and it was just a word that they used to describe Black people, and that was that. But what I found was, more than anything, that the N-word was actually used to sort of ventriloquize Blackness, so that the places that I would see it in newspapers was largely... Um, in these mocking and anecdotal um, uh, pieces in in newspapers that were largely anti-black, but putting the word the N word into black people speaking, so as if the as if the black speaker was saying it, and I thought that was really peculiar because what it said to me was that basically when I heard the N word, that it, it was very likely white people were actually mocking the way black people spoke to each other, which really, which really opened up something, a possibility for me, which, um, um, which made me become really, really interested in the research and really, really interested in the N word. And when I started to sort of uncover, especially for travelers who went abroad, like Frederick Douglass, William Wells Brown, was that the, 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 they could actually mark their experience of traveling abroad by the lack of hearing the N-word in public space. And that, and that um, they, they felt so mocked by this word that one, one of my speakers, for example, talks about like walking down the street and basically being ch- chased down by little children screaming the word at him. Like this was a typical experience for a free man of color walking through space um, in the Annabelle North. And so, um, I started to just really try to unpack, like, what was the power of that word? Why were my, the, the free black men that I wrote about during this period talking about it so much? What did it signify for them in particular? Um, and I really started to get at the fact that it, it was like the great symbolic of home for free people was this word because even as black people were becoming free in the North, and this is something that I say in my writing, it, it kind of clamped down on them like a shackle 
that the N, that they were going to be considered and perceived as N-word, even as that category was, was um, dispersing and, and exploding. That in fact, there was a category N-word, it was a labor category. And the word was not nice, but it wasn't an epithet. Um, that it really becomes an epithet as folks start to become free. And so, yeah, so that's how that, that's how I sort of situated because I felt like it represented really clearly what home was for these free black folks. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the features that I came to realize as I was uh, reading your book really was how a lot of times when people think about, you know, uh, how mobility worked and, and such like that. You know, a lot of times blackness and mobility is designated as a post uh, emancipatory uh, situation, you know, i.e. what we were speaking about with uh, Ida B. Wells and and others uh, in the late 19th and going into the 20th century as uh, as uh, uh, segregation was becoming more and more entrenched. But as I read your book, I'm realizing that as you're talking about the N word is a way to really designate you in public, though you are free, you are inward. So that means that you are um, categorically um, unable to fit the creations of American citizenship or what they were um, in the national and also state um, designations. Exactly. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it becomes a category that's immutable. Like it doesn't really matter who you are you can't get and i and i think it's one of the things that's really interesting is um uh hosea easton who's one of the um you know um black men that i write about he's like there's nothing really wrong in inherently with the category n-word i'm just not one of them like so so he the problem for these early you know folks like in the 1830s and 1840s, isn't that the category exists on its face. I mean, they recognize that there are black people doing, you know, involuntary labor around them. They don't want that. They'd love to see slavery come to an end, but they recognize that's a real category. But they believe that as they're, pull, as they're pulling out of this category, as they're becoming free and, and making lives th- themselves and contributing um, becoming citizens, essentially, that they should be recognized apart from that labor category, and they can't be. Um, it's 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 proving increasingly impossible for them. Yeah, and and especially when you try to think about what um, what is happening is uh, politically and and socially in the nation at this particular time. Um, could you also um, really speak upon? as we speak about the N-word, but also moving into other portions of the book, um, how did really, because a lot of the people that you speak about are, you know, a black abolitionist and such like that, uh, you know, what did mobility mean to them, uh, you know, as obviously your second chapter is, is noted as, what does mobility mean to them um, as those who were, some of them were formerly enslaved, um, like, uh, like, uh, Douglas and, and others, but also even for those who, um, were free born. Well, I mean, I think for all Americans, all U.S.ers that, that 
mobility is sort of the quintessential mark of U.S. citizenship. That being able to come and go as one pleases is what makes you an American and have your rights respected in one part of the country the same way they're respected in another part. And so uh, free people kind of expected, hoped, I I think they believed, they believed in the system, right? They believed that there was a, like there was a glitch in the matrix um, that, that was slavery, but that, but that when they became free, certainly they, those, those, um, uh, those opportunities, that, that reality, that opening would be available to them as well. And so for them, it represented, I think it, it really does signify citizenship, like being able to, and then they become free or they were already free as the case of Charles Ramon, who I write about in the, in the North, um, you know, they're already free and they, they see like, wait a minute, um, my mobility is being foreclosed upon in every direction. This isn't just about, you know, keeping people contained on plantations, you know, in the South. This is about not even giving me the ability to get from one place to another throughout the North. Um, What happens on steamships and stagecoaches and then is institutionalized um, with the advent of the, the railroads in the late 1830s. Right. And so that's a perfect segue into speaking about when you speak about rail cars, when we think about Jim Crow, right, most of the time, I would say 99% of Americans and even internationally, when people think of Jim Crow, they think of something in the post-Reconstruction United States or even simply just the United States South. But the title of your book has before the Civil War and it to be an abolitionist almost exclusively meant that you were northern, um, uh, that you were northern a black person. So can you speak about the uh, origination of the Jim Crow car and even Jim Crow as a term um, that people use? Sure. Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, I pretty much everybody that I speak to is fairly surprised. Um even though I'm, I'm, I'm not the very first person to write about this. Um, um, nevertheless, I think this has to do with like historical memory, right? That we, we want to, as a nation, imagine that there's a part of the nation that's always been conscious and that has always been sort of intrinsically abolitionist. And that's not the case. Slavery existed in all 13 um, of the original colonies um, you know, including the Northern colonies, that um, it had to be undone. It was undone quickly in the North, but um, I mean, in in uh, fairly quickly in the North, it was, you know, fitful. Um, but it doesn't mean that slavery did not exist in, 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 in the North. And so with that was sort of the, uh, the, the undoing of slavery also is like the kind of creation of a society that accepts black people as equal people. Like that, what is that? What are we going to do with the former slaves? I mean, that'd be a big question in, in the North during the antebellum period and, and travel I think becomes 
a, a site. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's on the vehicles of travel that um, that Jim Crow is born um, in 1838, according to my, um, you know, my research in 1838 on the Massachusetts Railroad. And, and that's because, um, you know, as, um, you know, as travel is sort of unfolding also, I mean, this is at the beginning of travel, um, the, you know, the kind of the middle of the transportation revolution that this term emerges and, um, you know, what it, well, you know, where does it come from? So, sorry, let me step back a little bit. Um, of course, it, it, it comes from the Jim Crow um, minstrel shows that were um, performed in the early 1830s. Jim Crow was a minstrel character, uh, a blackface character performed by a white actor who would, you know, go on the stage and kind of replicate blackness. And it was like a... Um, you know, tattered clothing, um, this kind of like a bravado, a uh, a dangerous kind of masculinity and sexuality um, that you know the the colored traveler that Jim Crow would sing sing about the the um, the Jim Crow minstrel character would go around beating up black people, um, mostly beating up other black people, incidentally, but still dangerous. Um, you know, trying to get with, you know, women and sleep with women all over the place, kind of like this strange, dangerous masculinity that needed to be contained, that needed to be disciplined. Um, that's who the Jim Crow character was. And it was very appealing to working class whites. Um, 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 these minstrel, you know, shows um, were super appealing. And many of um, the people, in fact, all of the people who were who were conductors on railroads were actually from this class of people to whom the Jim Crow um, um, character would have been, you know, extremely appealing. So the the word comes from this separate car um, that was created in the late 1830s, expressly for poor people and black people to ride the railroads. Um, there'd been on steamships, on stagecoaches, there had been separate spaces, but they weren't formally called anything. On the railroad, they're called all sorts of things. It's called the dirt car, the refuge car, the refuse car, um, the dirty car, the pauper car. Um, but eventually the the name that sticks is the Jim Crow car. Um, and the first time I saw this term in, in publication is in um, a, a letter by the black abolitionist David Ruggles, who confronts conductors and says that they bodily grabbed him, conductor and the, and the conductor's posse made up of brakemen and firemen and all kinds of people working the train to keep him out of the first class car, which he could afford. Um, but to keep him out of that space because of his blackness, they, they, you know, physically dragged him and threw him bodily into this Jim Crow car um, that was often dirty, smelly, cold. There wasn't seating. There were, you know, you know, people who were really impoverished who were, you know, in uh, affording the only train ride they might have that year or ever. 
And, um, and here are these, you know, black men with tails and top hats being thrown into these gym, um, to what becomes called the Jim Crow car. And that's born out of this kind of struggle between, you know, white workers, black men who can afford first class travel, um, uh, coming together in the train. Mm, and, and, and when you speak about all of this happening, it, it just makes you think about, you know, how, you know, black folks, you know, in the contemporary sense, uh, I know growing up, you know, they'd always tell you, uh, you know, dress, you, you know, you gotta, you know, gotta pull up those pants. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta look nice and you gotta be presentable this and this, but, um, really what, you know, the foundation of your story, um, in, in this sense was that it didn't matter what, what a lot, it didn't matter what a lot of the abolitionists, uh, were wearing because obviously to be an abolitionist almost meant exclusively that you were, you know, middle class, it wouldn't be the right term to say because that concept didn't come until a little later, but they were of a class of people that at least if did not have money, they had access to certain resources because really to be able to travel meant that you had to be mobile and to be mobile meant that you had to have some modicum of of money to be able to move around. Um, Right. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's really important that the people that I'm writing about are people with, with, I mean, to call it privilege might be a stretch, but they had something that not every black person in the North time had, which is they had some disposable income. Um, they were often lecturers that needed and um, to be able to um, rely on transportation to 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 network to you know to tell their you know abolitionist stories to um, to meet in churches to you know to you know to extend the word that they were trying to get out. They needed this um, these this transportation, and they could afford it, and they could. And I think there's something really important too about being able to ride in the first class cars. Now, what I'm calling, what I'm calling first class cars, this isn't like first class on an airline, right? This isn't the super special. This is just like being able to sit down. That was first class, right? So traveling in the section with seats um, is what was, would have been kind of thought of as the first class at the time, but being able to travel in that space signified something as well, which is that like, Part of the importance was being able to get from here to there, but being able to get from here to there in a particular space also was a way of kind of um, representing your citizenship, of of announcing your citizenship. Like, here I am. I could afford this. I'm traveling in this space. I'm like everybody else. You know, I can get I can get there in a particular way because a lot of the travelers that I study could get where they needed to go if they were willing to spend 14 hours outside on the deck of a ship uh, in, in a rainstorm. They could get to where they needed to be. They didn't want to go that way, and they could afford not to go that way. It's just that the captains and the other travelers often, not always, but often um, force them to, to And it's almost like their way. money was, to a certain degree, counterfeit, that they, they couldn't, you know their 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 money was you know the 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 designated um uh, uh currency but it almost as if it was uh, uh of a of a different of a different kind right they they couldn't fully eke out uh what was truly theirs in the money that they had um which almost in a way brings up you know kind of how uh you know 
almost a hypocritical notion that you know I speak about at the African Meeting House sometimes, where you have these African Americans who are who are free, right? You know, they are not enslaved, but you know, are they necessarily citizens? And I think that's the critical intervention that you make in your book is that you know you let them and, and their travel experiences show personally uh, to for, for them how they felt about what citizenship was for them. And so I think that's uh, one of the more important, at least personally, uh, that's one of the more uh, important interventions that your work really does. Thank you. I mean, one of the things that I write about is this idea of the criminalization of Black mobility, which is that it's it's basically, you know, a story of fugitivity, which is that every Black person who was moving through space was a suspect. Um, because the idea was that black people were supposed to be static. Black people were black people were one thing. They were N word, and this is another reason why I start the story at the at, at, at where I do, because the idea is that you are a laborer. You labor for somebody else. You're an involuntary laborer. It's in perpetuity. This is who you're going to be. It's immutable. That kind of you know. That kind of idea makes you and uh, you your identity, but also your physical uh, presence sort of a static one. And um, what the colored travelers, um, uh, you know, from like you say, from from middle class, and Leslie Harris talks about this middle class as like she's talking about, you know, I'm, she says I'm not talking about money here. I'm talking about through education and experience, right? Um, I'm not talking about, you know, middle class in terms of money isn't, isn't applicable to these these people because even when they have some privilege, they're still relatively poor in the grand scheme of things. I, I, occasionally, somebody's not. Charles Remond's not. Um, uh, James, uh, whose name is escaping me, is not, you know, like, the, but the, but, you know, there's a couple of, you know, millionaires, Robert Purvis, et cetera. Uh, but, but, but you know, for the most part, you're talking about people who have just a little bit more. But um, even so, like seeing a black person in motion made them criminally suspect. And I think one one of the great and profound sort of uh, interventions that David Ruggles makes is he twists the story. He doesn't try to defend himself as not guilty. I'm not guilty. I don't know why they treated me as guilty. He doesn't say that. What he says is they're guilty. They're the criminals. They, you know, they robbed me. He uses this language. It was highway robbery. You know, he, and I think, I think that's really important because he's kind of flipping the story. Like, you know, you you know, we've been sort of accused, um, you know, uh, a couple of decades earlier, um, Paul Cuffey is on public transportation and kind of confronts one of these um, outraged white passengers who can't believe he's not moving seats. And, you know, and he explains, well, if, you know, when white women come in, I always move. Um, And I always give up my seat for the ladies, of course, but I'm not moving for this, you know, bloke, you know, I don't have any interest in doing that and I don't need to. Um, But he says, you know, I didn't really want to ruffle anybody's feathers. That wasn't my intention. By the time we get, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later to David Ruggles, he's like, I'm ruffling feathers because this is absolutely criminal. 
what people are doing to me, taking my money, not giving me what I paid for, forcing me to drive in another. I, I paid my four dollars. I should be in the first class. That's what the four dollar ticket is for. And I think it really kind of sets the groundwork in some ways for the kind of activism around transportation that you know we'll see for the next hundred and hundred and fifty years. Um, what what um, what David Ruggles is is doing and fighting against, and um, but yeah, I mean this. I started thinking about it really more in more sophisticated ways around Trayvon Martin uh, is in thinking about how black mobility is understood as inherently criminal. You know, you hear, you hear people saying, well, why didn't they, why did they talk back to the cops? And why did I was like, well, if you weren't, if you weren't guilty and you were in there, you would talk back to the cops. I mean, like you would say, why are you arresting me? Why are you pulling me over? I mean, that's, that is completely reasonable. But there's something about blackness that makes that story sound a little different, as if blackness automatically makes somebody dangerous um, and in need of discipline. Right. And and honestly, you know, I'm I'm from Winter Park, Florida. Uh, so that's where I grew up. And Winter Park, Florida is this, is probably about thirty miles away from Sanford, and my grandfather uh, was a um, was a minister at a church in in Sanford for a number of years. And so, um, you know, I remember coming home from from college um, at it around that time. Actually, the year before um, the, the Trayvon Martin uh, uh, murder occurred, and you know, I would I would be running at night. You know, I worked two jobs, and so I'd be running at night and. You know, after what happened to Trayvon, I was like, I can't do that anymore because, you know, it, it, it what it does is that the the understanding of history, especially for African-Americans in light of uh, what goes on um, within uh, the criminal justice system, especially it, it, it depresses your humanity to the point where things that just should be normal at trying to be healthy, really gets criminalized, right? Because, you know, a lot, you, you know, a lot, most people don't work out at, you know, at, uh, at their home, they do it somewhere else. They do it outside. But what happens when your, your skin complexion denotes the disposability of your body and, and, and the potential, um, especially in the antebellum period that you are, uh, a fugitive, um, and, and you can be taken. And one of the most, I think, important, connections that I was able to make in this process of criminalization is, is the um, deputization of white people to surveil black mobility. And I think that is like, that's what happened with the Trayvon Martin case, but that happened. And that was like, you know, uh, something that's, you know, was, was legal. I mean, it's in the U S constitution, basically um, that um, it is the job of, of those people deemed free to keep other people from moving through space in ways they shouldn't be. So that, you know, um, for example, in uh, like the colonial North, there were, um, you know, so this isn't just about the South, but this is like in the colonial North, there were curfews that, um, you know, said that, um, that, Mestizo, uh, well, uh, Native Americans, mulattoes, um, and 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 black people, whether slave or free, couldn't go out in the night hour, meaning after nine o'clock. They shouldn't be 
they shouldn't be moving through space. And that it was the job then of white people to, if they saw them to turn them in. So this like, you know, and, and I think I, I, I think that the, the way I exemplify this most is through the runaway slave advertisement, which, you know, on the one hand makes, you know, black, you know, black, uh, movement totally fungible as something fugitive, the runaway slave advertisement, because especially because the, the, um, the actual like stereotype, which is what the image is called is a stereotype of, um, the black person running away is, is standardized, right? So every time you see that image in the newspaper, you're, you're like a black person is running. It could be any black person looking at the image. Maybe the description tells you more and they did, but the image itself is fungible, right? Uh, Um, and makes black people fungible. And so, it was the job, not just of sheriffs and lawmakers who did this work, of slaveholders who did this work, but of regular white folks all over the place in the North and the South to, to um, and they had the right to stop black people and say, do you have your papers? You know, who's, who's, who's um, boy are you? You know, they had the right to say that whether you were free or not. And so it kind of sets up the idea that whites are, um, are, are the deputies and are the, um, the watchers of black mobility. And I think that's, I mean, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I know that's consistent today. I mean, that, that, there, that has not changed. If anything, I think it's even more, um, entrenched. Right. And, 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 and you spoke about, um, in, in the book talking about the really the when people think about like the um the NSA and and the the Patriot Act post 9/11 and everything like that you know the interesting part is that you know the for for African Americans they've been sort of, they're the one group who have been uh or along with the you know natives uh, as well in this respect but for the most part African Americans have held down the story of being surveilled in some kind of way to where whether or not you're talking about vagrancy or even, you know, you look at how Oregon, to give you an example, in 1858 or 1859, being the only state whose uh, who, who's state constitution that gets ratified for them to become a state, you know, it disallows African-Americans from coming there. Um, so that's a, a, a hindrance. I, 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 and it is not the only state. I mean, I think that's about like Illinois and Indiana and many, many of the so-called free states had had um, that kind of provision. It wasn't always, um, it wasn't always like um, observed or it wasn't always through, but. Um, no, but, but I definitely, you know, that that's, that's definitely a point that um, a lot of the states that you don't necessarily, you know, connect to slavery you know, being Illinois, you know, the land of Lincoln. So the land of Lincoln, almost the land of emancipation. Um, you know, you don't necessarily conjure that image, but um, where did a lot of, you know, a lot of Southerners who, you know, a lot of those who left, especially the upper North, they ended up venturing out to a lot of those spaces out West or um, in the, um, in the Northwest uh, along what was the uh, Northwest ordinance. Um, but Speaking of really the, the the travel aspect and and really you know uh, really looking at how travel expanded with the abolitionist movement too for African Americans, 
Um, could you speak about how traveling across the Atlantic, how that changed or how did that affect um, you, you highlighted it briefly earlier, more so in the beginning, but can you um, speak more to the point of how becoming an international abolitionist changed or really affected uh, the understanding of their, uh, of their you know, citizenship conceptions in the United States? I think that the problem in the United States for people like Frederick Douglass, James Pennington, William Wells Brown, and even... Um, Harriet Jacobs, is that the idea of freedom is conceptual because like even as they they understand they're no longer enslaved, they understand they 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 get that. I mean, they're not stupid, right? They understand well that they're they're not in they're not enslaved anymore, but they're still afraid. You know, like there's there's a pal over them. Um, where they could be re they could be re-enslaved, they could be captured, and they are running into this kind of Jim this emerging um, Jim Crow segregation that's first you know rearing its head on the trans on transportation, but in all kinds of public spaces. So that um, you know, in fact, Harriet Jacobs, when she first comes to the North, she writes about this in her memoir. Um, incidents, she says, like what the the first thing that cooled my um, my feelings about the the North was that that she was thrown into the Jim Crow car from Philadelphia to New York. So, like they are they're free, but they're really realizing there are, are extreme limits to what that freedom actually means. So they don't even know what freedom looks like, right? I mean, they can look at white people and say, "I want to be like," them. they don't know what it. They don't know it like psychologically, like in their gut. Like, what does it feel like to just walk through space and feel like I can just be chill? And so when they when they go abroad, I mean, they, they, they confront many of the same kinds of um, restrictions on the transatlantic voyage that they face, um, you know, in the rail cars and in the steam ships and stagecoaches in the north. Um, that transatlantic journey isn't so much better, although I do argue different but not so much better, right? And then they step on to, uh, onto British soil and pretty much across the board, they say, for the very first time, I knew what it was to be a man. For the very first time, I knew what it was to be free. That there is something so visceral, you know, so sensory in that experience of freedom to be able to walk through space and not fear re-enslavement, not fear the N-word, not fear being accosted and assaulted, um, knowing that you can, you know, Frederick Douglass talks about being able to walk through any space. He goes to a museum and some of the same people that were sneering on at him on the boat are in line with him. And he's like, they can sneer all they want, but I was in front of them in line and um, the servants treated me like everybody else. You know, they go on... Um, you know, railroad cars, and they're like just sitting next to people. They don't, the only time they confront um, any kind of foreclosure on their mobility when they're abroad is when they come into contact with USers, with, the, with other Americans. And so um, there is, they use this experience. They're able to use this, this kind of 
revelation of freedom to start kind of structuring the movement back home. What is it going to mean to be free? You know, what, how can we even perceive and conceptualize this identity? And I think it isn't until they start going abroad and then returning home that they're able to do that work. Right. And, and a lot of it reminds me of, you know, reading about um, 20th century examples of this um, in the lives of, uh, you know, James Baldwin, Richard Wright, and, and other um, intellectuals who they realized how American they were once they were abroad. Um, so how they understood themselves within the country changed, but it could only change when they left the country. And so, um, you know, that, you know, that uh, tradition was really uh, founded in this period. And a lot of the people um, you, 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 you write about, you know, there, there were, there were a whole host, you know, you talk about Harriet Jacobs or, um, or, or uh, the, um, the crafts and, and Frederick Douglass and others, you know, their, their, their freedom really made them want to fight even harder to, to gain those kinds of freedoms and to smell the, what freedom's air is really like, you know, to the point where, you know, Douglas, you know, yeah, you know, he, 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 he enjoyed his 19 months, but there's a reason why he came back. Right. There is. Yeah. I mean, all, I mean, many of the folks I study were like, I don't like, they're like, kind of like, I had to come back. I had to come back for the fight. There, but the fight is why I came back. I, um, you know, I, because I don't have a country. I do not have a nation. And my nation does not love me either. You know, and, and I think that's like, I don't know. I, I, I feel like that's a really profound, like that they even, that they knew and had the language to really describe um, their relationship to the United States as free people. I mean, I think one of the things to me, one of the examples that makes this the most clear is the denial um, of black international travelers of the U.S. citizenship by the Department of uh, U.S. passport by the Department of State. And so the, the U.S. passport, um, I write about this, that the U.S. passport um, um, the, you know, how it was distributed was sort of like a, a hot mess really, um, until like the mid 1850s, but, um, still largely the state department granted it. And, um, um, the thing about the passport was though, that it, it denoted citizenship. It said, please protect so-and-so a citizen of the United States. And when the department of state knew that the applicant was a free person of color, they did not want to give them that passport because it denoted citizenship. So they would give them something called a certificate of protection, which said, please give him, this is a lawful citizen. Of, uh, uh, sorry, this person is, uh, give them the rights that you would give an, any American. They are, they rightfully live in the United States but they wouldn't say that the person was a citizen. It was, it was a citizen. It was a totally different document. And um, as far as I can tell about four people 
maybe more, but four that I know about and who have written about it were able to kind of push back and get an actual U.S. passport for one reason or another. And they waived that as paper proof of their citizenship. Um, But many more were not able to get those documents. And I think like, so, so what it would essentially do is it would put them in a position of of traveling abroad, like, so you didn't really need a passport to travel in the United States, as you know, and you didn't really need one in England. But once you got to the European continent, you could be arrested without having that documentation. I mean, they were basically limiting their ability to travel in certain places by not issuing a formal passport to them. And so it was a way of um, kind of internationalizing their outlaw status by refusing to grant this this um, document, which I think is really telling. I, I think it's, um, you know, a, a way the United States was trying to, to you know, uh, they, didn't, they didn't want people like Frederick Douglass traveling around because he completely, or Harriet Jacobs, even though she was a servant, they didn't want somebody like Harriet Jacobs because they were, um, they were proof that all the things that the United States was saying about black people, which was, you know, they were primitive, they needed, they needed to be um, disciplined, they needed to be enslaved or else they were going to, you know, do these, you know, brutal things. And they, you know, um, were like children that somebody like Frederick Douglass, Harry Jacobs, um, uh, uh, um, Ramon, uh, that I can't remember her first oh, name. Sa- oh, right? Sarah Parker. Parker, thank you. Sorry, um, Sarah Parker Ramon. Um, that that these people were anything but that. I mean, they were elegant and articulate and brilliant and great speakers and beautiful. And you know, they you know they by their very person they debunked this idea that the U.S. was trying to put forth about blackness. Right, and I definitely um, and I definitely think that you know you 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 made critical points and interventions on that on those particular points of. Uh, really how all of those figures that you just mentioned, they were really radicalized and really made critical differences and great, made great partnerships with um, abolitionists abroad. Um, but as we've said before, it also made them realize that, as you said before, there's a big fight going on in the United States. And it's really, obviously, you know, not, you know, they don't know that a civil war is coming, but there were some times where uh, uh, there was there were prophetic words being used, like uh, by Sarah Parker uh, Riemann when she was there um, prior to. Um, I think she she came over in like 1858 or 1859, um, and there were a couple of speeches where she spoke about the need of some kind of conflict to rectify the situation in the United States, and so you know they used their stage, and so. I even, in, in my thesis work, I talked about how Sarah Parker Riemann was an international black diplomat, you know, working on behalf of her people um, as she was speaking to these important folks in, 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 the, in, uh, in, in the UK or excuse me, Britain um, during this critical juncture. Um, and once the Civil War came, actually, as the Confederates were there simultaneously, too. Um, and so, you know, it, it, the story that you speak about it, I think it's something that a lot of people need to know more about throughout the entirety of the nation to let them know um, for the first time, uh, potentially, uh, that the story of Jim Crow is not a, it doesn't begin at the end of the 19th century. In many ways, it's uh, it, it's at the middle area, the, the late early to, to the middle 
uh, middling areas uh, time frame of the 19th century. Um, and I th- really think it'll change people's understandings uh, in, in our pr- present moments about, you know, if you tell someone to go back, that that means that they have to be mobile enough to somehow get there unless you're willing to provide economic uh, means for them to leave. Um, and so I think that's a contemporary connection to make. And I definitely appreciate the, the work that you've been able to, to produce. Thank you so much. I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's so important what you just said, which is that, I mean, really Jim Crow starts to appear the minute black people start to become free, real way to manage black freedom. And, you know, and I think that that's important too, because, um, you know, it's sort of, I think sometimes even Jim Crow can be envisioned as well what how do you, how did you sort of expect the south to respond when they had four million black people that were suddenly free like it, it, not like people are like gung-ho on segregation but it seems like sort of like this natural trajectory but it had already been working itself out in the north i mean it was like they learned from what was happening in the north they didn't like invent it you know this was something that they um they copied which was how to you know how to treat you know black people in public space. And it was that they were not going to be, they were never going to be imagined as full citizens. Right. And and even in the post-Civil uh, War period, that's why, you know, you had former Confederates and other Southerners saying, well, why is it that African-Americans are leaving the North to come to the South to be able to get elected? Why are they not getting elected in the North? And in many ways, you know, it's, you know, that's a very, you know, it, it, it it's definitely an indictment on the North and, and trying to you know, kind of balance culpability um, as far as, you know, the contemporary moments here. And so um, we definitely thank you for, for having uh, the time to speak to us today. And um, in the last couple minutes that we have you, um, you know, it, it takes a lot to produce these projects and, 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 you know, it's, it's always good to, to, to hear about them, but, you know, we're, you know, we don't want to be greedy per se, but we want to know what's next for you. Um, well, do you have anything else that you're working on presently or in the future that uh, you don't mind uh, spending a couple minutes speaking to us about? Sure. I'd love to talk about my next project. Um, I actually am building on the work I did in that first chapter. Um, I am going to be writing a pedagogical and historical um, narrative of the N-word in U.S. history and um, um, framed by my personal experience as a biracial woman and in, in the U.S. And so um, it's not a memoir, but I kind of have these touch points um, that I'd like to you know build upon, especially because in my case, my personal story is connected to the fact that my father was the late comedian Richard Pryor, who had, um, who who was very much responsible on the one hand for making the black use of the N word kind of uh, popular knowledge, you know, to the general public in his work, but also somebody who disavowed that work, uh, that word in um, the early, um, the late 1970s after he traveled to Kenya. And so kind of connecting my own story to my father's 
and to my teaching and also the history of this word is um, the next project that I'm working on. It's really, it's difficult, but yes, I've just, I, I'm, I'm just starting in earnest and it's pretty exciting because um, like with the chapter that I wrote, I just feel like, I think that as um, Americans, we take a little bit for granted that we understand what this word is really about. I don't think we've done the the, the crucial, important work of deconstructing the, the many meanings at different moments um, that this word, you know, connotes. And also, um, I also think um, part of the kind of push for me to write the book is I think it's... Uh, I think that folks become very polemical around... Um, who can say the word and, and who shouldn't say the word and when we should say it. And I think that that, I think there's a time and place for that conversation and that conversation should happen, but I don't even think the, um, sort of the initial conversation has even happened about like, you know, what the word's about. So, so, uh, for example, your typical, uh, your typical middle school student is sort of like supposed to know by osmosis, right? They've been, they, you know, that, that this is a, a, a bad word. Now, black students have a certain relationship to the word, um, depending on where they grew up and where they come from. You know, some middle class, um, you know, black students will never have said the word. Some people who come from working class families will have grown up hearing the word all the time and it will be affectionate sometimes and it will be an indictment at others. Um, white students and other non-black POC will have a different relationship. And so I'm just trying to sort of sort through and, you know, part of what I've learned in doing this research is that uh, most uh, of my students, by the time I get them in the college classroom, they have already had a point of an academic point of encounter with the N-word. And that's been in the junior um, high or high school classroom. And in that moment, when they're confronted with literature um, that uses this language, um, they are given one of three choices, which is you, you have to say the word. It's important to say the word. Never say the word. Don't ever say the word. Or you should choose whether or not to say the word. But the students are never told why. You know, and what I'm hoping to do in the work that I'm doing now is sort of help make sense, like what the the many myriad complexities of this word and its impact and um, its representation as a signifier of race relations in the U.S. So that's. That's the well, project. we, oh my gosh, I'm very, very excited <laughs> once this uh, project is uh, is fully, uh, fully done. And, um, you know, I definitely enjoy this interview. And I'm sure that when the time comes, I definitely would love to engage with you further um, in the, in this, in this, uh, for, or excuse me, for the podcast uh, to bring you back because it's definitely been a, a very fast moving, but also a enjoyable um, uh, hour that we've spent together. Um, and so definitely, um, definitely appreciate your time. And, uh, once again, everybody, we have just been listening to Elizabeth Pryor, associate professor of history, um, at Smith college in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts. And we have just been speaking to her about her book published by the university of North Carolina press called colored travelers mobility and the fight for citizenship before the civil war. And um, thank you again. And um, like I said, we hope to have you on the podcast again soon. And um, and please tell the listeners not goodbye, but see you later. <laughs> bye bye.